Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Welcome, everybody, to the beginning of this week's Public Health Power Hour, a session on United Nations General Assembly and Public Health. Um, the Public Health Power Hour is a weekly live audio discussion on the relationship between personal health and public health. And to us, that means culture, it means access to medicine, it means you know everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That could be environmental factors like clean air, water. It means um, places that you can go to get exercise. It also means removing barriers to health like stigma and bias. And COVID-19 has made this a more important and bigger conversation than ever before. Um, and it's demonstrated that we have so much more to do to protect people's health. And that's what this uh, show is all about. Um, this discussion is all about. My name is Steve Hamill, speaking from the Vital Strategies Twitter account. I started my career um, as a door-to-door -door advocate, um, rallying people for student rights, for health, for consumer rights. Um, and now I'm working at Vital Strategies as Vice President for Communication. And one of the things I love about working here is that we still retain that interest, that need to, to talk with people from all walks of life and, and to base our work on the perspectives and experiences of, of, the, of the populations that we're supporting to improve their health. Um, and we started this Public Health Power Hour because we want to build a community of people who are trying to reimagine public health so that it's at the center of commerce and social and civic life and to learn from those different perspectives. All the speakers that we have today, we have three fantastic speakers, are participating in their personal capacity and their statements and views on this show represent those their points of view. We are recording the show, and if you speak, please note that we may use your comments in the future recording. We've had fantastic discussions in prior weeks um, on NCDs and COVID, on women and health, on the tobacco industries, targeted youth, and so much more. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a way you think we can improve the show, please drop us an email at powerhour@vitalstrategies.org. I'm excited that we're on Twitter Spaces this week instead of Clubhouse. We're trying out this new format to see what works for our audience. And if you followed the discussions before, you know we like to introduce our speakers and warm up the room by sharing some news that's caught our speakers' attention on any top this week topic, on any topic. And I'll start with our speakers, uh, And we, but we're happy to hear from you too if you're in the audience. If you have something to share, please request the mic. I'll bring you up. 
Um, but uh, I'll start with our speakers. First off, Carrie Cullinan is the Africa editor for Health Policy Watch with a career of covering social issues on the continent, including Carrie, uh, uh, including health and governance. Carrie, welcome. And what caught your eye this week? I think I, th I wanted to focus on a good news story because we're going to be focusing on a some dismal news. So a few articles that caught my eye this week were the vaccine deliveries by something called the Africa Vaccine Acquisition Trust, um, AVAT. Um, they've been delivering vaccines to Africa. We, as you might know, we are very, very short and um, COVAX has been unable to deliver to African countries since March. So um, AVAT has stepped in. It's, it's an initiative of the African Union and in the last week or so, it's been delivering small doses, small deliveries of 100,000 um, vaccines here and there. But still, it's a huge relief to, to, to hear that vaccines are getting to some of the countries that have some which haven't even started to vaccinate yet. So that was my, the, the article that caught my eye this week. Thanks so much. And I agree with you. Much needed good news, especially on the topic of vaccine equity. Um, our next speaker is Rebecca Pearl, Vice President of Partnerships and Initiatives at Vital Strategies and a Peabody Award-winning journalist who's covered the topic of the tobacco, tobacco use, tobacco industry, among other health topics. Rebecca, what caught your eye this week? Hi, Steve. Thank you. Um, my story is one I heard on a roundtable on my local NPR station a couple of days ago, and now I see has become front page news. A group of journalists were talking about recent activity in Texas, which as of yesterday, all but makes abortions illegal there. And what's particularly concerning about this particular law is that this law was written in such a way that it makes it very hard to challenge. And there's fear that other states will follow and that this could erode Roe v. Wade, which protects a woman's right to choose whether to have children. And what really concerned me about this is I think it feels like part of a backsliding trend or, or maybe more of a backlash that fights against women's rights to civil liberties, to their own bodies, to schooling and to power, um, something we fear with the rise of the Taliban in, Af in Afghanistan and other repressive governments. So the fate of women and their limited access to power has been on my mind and basically who gets to control their futures. And that's what we're going to talk about some today too, I think. Thanks so much um, for bringing that to the to, into the room, Tala. I'd like to um, to introduce you to the stage. Tala Dala Chahi is a communications expert with substantial experience in strategy development, public health policy advocacy, and multi-stakeholder work. She's a consultant here at Vital Strategies and also serves on the advisory board of Geneva Macro Labs, a think tank that's focused on advancing the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. Welcome, Tala. What, what article caught your eye this week? Thanks so much, Steve. I realized that I picked an article from a white male American, and I and I should have picked something, uh, so, someone different from a different country to be more representative. But I picked Jeffrey Sachs' article because I thought it was very good from Project Syndicate this in August, the case for G twenty one, and I think this is important. We've been discussing it with colleagues. The Jeffrey Sachs talks about making uh, the African Union the twenty first member, and then actually leveling off the playing field a bit more in terms of a multilateral approach. And I'm going to speak more about that. 
this effort for uh, governments to kind of rejoin a multilateral effort, but to level it off and to have the African Union be a part of the G20, like the European Union, would be bringing some 1.3 billion people into representation. So I wanted to kind of flag that article, which was very, very good. I love that. Thank you. I'm going to share an article as well, and we'll, we might have an additional minute. If you'd like to share something that caught your eye, please raise your hand. I'd be happy to bring you to the front of the room. The article I want to share, um, or the topic, is about China. This week, the government of China announced it's banning youth ages 18 and under from playing video games online for more than three hours a week. Um, this partly caught my eye because I'm a parent myself with two kids, and I know myself and every other parent has been worried about the dozens of hours our kids get each week of, uh, of screen time, especially during the last 18 months with the lockdowns and remote schooling. And I'm sure there are millions of others who feel the same way. Um, so in China now, youth will be allowed one hour between eight and nine on Fridays and two hours over each weekend to play online video games. And the rationale here is that children are getting addicted to online learning, uh, online gaming, and uh, it's affecting their health and their development. And I thought it was fascinating. First, I think it's notable that, that the Chinese government feels it has enough data on the impact of gaming on youth to kind of act with this level of intensity. I also think it's incredible, maybe even disconcerting, that that China has enough regulation over the internet and gaming sector that they could pull this off. I mean, it would be impossible here in the U.S., not just because of the technology, but culturally, it would be impossible. I'm sure that, you know, within the first hour of an announcement like this, there would be, you know, 24 game hour gameathons and this intense pushback on, on this kind of uh, regulation. But, you know, on the other hand, um, COVID-19 has revealed how important kind of cultural, political will and regulating the information landscape is. And, and and there's this, you know, China's showing that regulation is possible. Um, so there's that angle too. Um, this is actually the continuation of a prior policy that cut down on online gaming for youth. And I've seen a lot of arguments that the connections between, you know, the amount of gaming and health and behavioral problems are overstated. There's actually very little connectivity there. Um, but you know, from this parent's perspective, it's an understudied area of, of health and development. And I'm going to be curious to see in the near future if there's any studies of how this impacts the health and development of youth in China. Um, so thank you, each of your speakers, um, for sharing a little bit of your perspective through the news this week. We will start out on our main conversation now about the United Nations General Assembly, more popularly known as UNGA to uh, those who co covered it well. And I want to spend the first section of our discussion just talking about UNGA. What is it? Why is it important? How does health show up there? And then kind of pivot to breaking down this year's UNGA. How is it different? Um, you know, what are the political and topical currents? I'm very excited to have Kerry here as in her role as Africa news editor for Health Policy Watch and allowing us to tap into and lean into that, that perspective. Um, and I also want to connect this discussion with the leading health areas of COVID, climate, and non-communicable disease prevention, um, vital 
public health areas and key parts of vital strategies portfolio. Tala, maybe maybe you could start us off. Your career has brought you to work on health and social issues within the UN system. Maybe you can decode for our audience in a nutshell what is the United Nations General United Nations General Assembly, and how does it roll down to influencing the health policies of governments? So to be brief, uh, there are 193 member states or nations that are part of the UN General Assembly. It is governments that come together every year since 1946, I believe, when there were 50 or so nations, and now there are 193. It is a legitimate effort by the global community to advance a multilateral approach towards all of the world's global issues. Many um, critics of the General Assembly see it as a kind of symbolic uh, forum where developing countries come, they speak, but nothing really gets done because, hey, there's the Security Council and the United States and the France and UK and more powerful um, resourced governments that kind of take over the UN. But the General Assembly is important, and it is an agenda setter, essentially, every year in terms of the world's issues. This year, the president of the General Assembly, who is from Turkey, pushed forward an agenda to get back to the table in terms of multilateral approaches towards achieving the SDGs, tackling climate change, looking at extreme poverty, dealing with COVID. Next year, or this coming year in September, when you see the new PGA, who is from the Maldives, the Maldives at the end of this century is expected to be underwater. So you're going to see a real push from small island uh, nations to look at rising sea levels, the major polluters, and to advance the climate agenda. Because this is, we are on the brink. And if uh, you have a president who is going to be pushing that kind of agenda. So that, in short, is a little bit about the GA. Thanks so much. And Rebecca, can you help us think about this fall, what's going to happen this fall? What's the view from 10,000 feet? What do you think will be the top issues that are dominating the UNGA? Thank you, Steve. Um, and I think Tala mentioned several of them. Um, but honestly, I feel a bit sorry for the country delegates joining this year's um, United Nations General Assembly, because they have a roster of problems to try to contend with that not that is really, truly daunting and feels urgent. So, you know, where to begin? Well, there's this newest problem of Afghanistan and the Taliban, the Taliban and what to do there about peace and security, famine and economic ruin, which is touching other countries, too. Not to mention, well, to mention, as I did, the civil rights of girls and women, as we were talking about. And then, as Tyler mentioned, there's climate change. I mean, recent fires and floods seem to confirm that another new normal is upon us, um, especially, you know, it was became obvious in the West, too, that there's sort of maybe no place to hide with fires um, in Turkey and, and the North American West. And this scary situation of more unstable living conditions across the world, which is going to hit those with the without means the hardest and then yes there's covid and delta and what we do about how do we protect people and who's entitled to that protection um and governments and health systems push to the brink because of delta and we haven't even talked about a pandemic of ncds so it's a bit mind-boggling and i think i'd like to see i think what we need is for leaders to get in touch with their 
their crisis superpowers, their crisis muscle, and work to do what global government is supposed to do, as as Tala mentioned, and um, tackle these problems in a global way. Because, you know, we're just not going to be safe as as a world. No one's going to be until we truly deal with climate and COVID. I feel for them, honestly. I, I know that at the the UNGA, um, the agenda is everything, right? There's literally the entire to-do list of the world, the, the panoply of problems that we could be addressing. But the agenda is everything. And Tala, you've been following the lead up to this meeting. Look at the agendas, items, and statements by leaders and the, and, and digging into some of the pre-meeting meetings. Um, and you're putting together an article that will um, appear at Vital Strategies website and on Twitter that, that people can see when it comes out on what you think or what we predict um, are will be the leading four or five topics on the agenda. Can you preview with us here what you found? Sure. So some of them, so there are five, and some of them are rocket science. So the first is global health security. So member states, governments will come to the table and look at uh, efforts being um, put forward by WHO through the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. These are Madam uh, Helen Clark from New Zealand and Sirleaf Johnson from Liberia co-authored this report, which really and called on the Assembly to more swiftly identify and respond to future pandemics by creating a Global Health Threats Council by creating a financing capacity so that there's money in the kitty, essentially, in time for the next crisis. Um, You're seeing the G20 get uh, further involved in that. And then the major meeting uh, in November of the World Health Assembly Special Session, in which the co-authors of the report um, have asked for an international treaty on pandemics. Uh, Member states have been pushing this, the European Union, and so that will be discussed in November. The second item is promoting vaccine equity, which all of us know about, know about all of the glaring inequalities here. We know the United States, Germany, France, and Israel have recently begun their programs in terms of administering booster shots, where Africa is now still at 2% in terms of vaccination. So we've got to equal out um, that response. It is a huge um, task, and member states will be speaking about that, of course. The United States is planning a summit during the GA with NGOs and others to focus on their committed donations of vaccines, on funding, and boosting pledges for vaccines across the globe. And we'll see where President Biden is on that. He had committed to donating 500 million vaccines globally, um, but again, there are huge shortfalls. The third item is focusing on advancing the sustainable development goals. These goals, 17 of them, were unanimously approved by governments in 2015 and look at issues like hunger, um, eliminating poverty and inequality, reversing climate change and biodiversity losses. Well, we only have under 10 years to achieve these goals and just two of the 17 eliminating preventable deaths among newborns and under fives and getting children into primary schools have even come close to being achieved. We are way off track now. Um, the fourth item is looking at the um, addressing the climate change issue, as Steve discussed, as Rebecca discussed. Again, there is a UN um, conference, COP26, that will be in November in Glasgow, United Kingdom. Member states are likely to bring that up. 
the Paris Agreement, which was adopted by governments in 2015 to stop the negative impacts of climate change, to get in this century to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. There's a lot on the table here. And like Rebecca said, floods, droughts, uh, if you're in New York City, you know, what we what we dealt with last night, waterfalls of, of hurricanes. So this is something that can't be ignored. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, just recently issued a report, which many of you have read, which, uh, again, is indicating that we're far behind in terms of reducing global emissions by 7.6% per year. And that's just not happening. And the final uh, item focuses on the UN Secretary General's Food Systems Summit. Now, this is something that the Secretary General's office is leading and not necessarily led by the UNGA, but it is an effort to kind of crowdsource around Sustainable Development Goal 2, which is ending world hunger. The problem, and Steve, I know we're going to discuss this uh, later on in the conversation, is that a lot of people, civil society groups, local farmers and indigenous communities have criticized this conference because it has essentially let the agro industry indicate, you know, kind of dictate and indicate what the main agenda items are. And so there have been some shortfalls there. That's incredible. I mean, it is, um, it's a mind boggling basket of issues from ending world hunger to the crisis focused ones like climate, like um, you know, COVID, and um, it, it's really unbelievable. Carrie, I want to bring you into this. I'm, we know the UN is basically, it is, it's a political body. It's also dominated by the interests of the most powerful countries. And I'm wondering if we can tap into your perspective as the Africa News Editor at Global Health Policy Watch. What would um, you say, or what might African nations say are missing from the agenda, or what different discussions are happening on the continent that you you feel might be important that aren't showing up in this agenda? I think the previous speakers have given a really good um, summary of what is on the agenda. Maybe just from an African perspective, I would say that the biggest thing that the continent is facing is the economic devastation that has resulted from COVID. Um, you know, the lockdowns have probably damaged the countries and economies more severely than than the than the epidemic itself. Um, and we are in my own country and in my own the place where I live, Cape Town. We have seen epidemics of homelessness and hunger. The streets are full of people living on the streets who've lost their homes. Within days of our lockdowns, there were long, long lines outside food kitchens because people who received daily wages were no longer receiving those and they had nothing to fall back on and they had run out of food. So I think certainly the pandemic has has stripped any pretense from the world of um the divisions between the haves and the have-nots. And I would say that economic inequality is the burning issue that needs to be addressed. I was interested by the article that Tyler highlighted, um, written by Jeffrey Sachs, and I've seen reference to um, Africa being asked to join the G20. But Africa is not a country. Africa is a continent made up of 55 different countries. You don't have this idea of Europe being join, um, asked to join a forum made up of countries. So again, it's this idea that there's this dark continent 
that is one big mess um, that can be somehow brought to the table at, um, again as one one big big mess instead of understanding that there there are a multitude of of issues and um, differences between the fifty five countries and those needs to be um, brought those need to be considered and. We need to be considered as different countries, not as 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 a whole. But the biggest thing is how to introduce and mainstream the economies of of Africa, uh, rather than just regarding the continent as a place where wealthier countries come and take um, raw materials and 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 don't process them or or assist to build the economies of 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 the continent. Right, it's it's about power and and uh, you know treating a whole continent as monolithic, you know a monolithic body is is it's incredible. Um, Rebecca, I want to you know f- flip the coin a bit. Um, you know, speaking of what's missing uh, from the agenda, there's no mention of non-communicable disease and prevention, which is is in your portfolio and vitals. And can you speak to a little bit about how NCDs, as they're known, like cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, are, are are or are not showing up. You know, they're the NCD epidemic made us, uh, you know, the world really extra additionally vulnerable to COVID. It's a drain on national economies and health systems that are will be important to address in order to repair and build back better. But they just don't have the urgency of the current crisis. Are they getting overlooked? You know, what are NCD advocates, what are their hopes coming into UNGA and how do you think they might show up in the dialogue and the proceedings? Um, thanks, Steve. It's a great question. I think the way we get to NCDs, and you're right, they are being overshadowed to some extent, and that's that's too bad because they're a part of the problem. Um, I think the way we get to NCDs is two ways. One is through the SDGs. Just like Tala said, so many of them are far behind. Goal three, which includes progress on NCDs, and that's those diseases that kill 80% of the world's people um, and are growing due to lockdown habits of smoking and drinking and a stream of easily obtained poor quality foods, which drives these diseases you mentioned, Steve. So I think we have to get to it through the SDGs. It's moving the SDGs and moving in particular goal three. There's another connection and that's through COVID because these severe and de- severe and deadly cases of COVID are more likely um, in people suffering from NCDs such as heart disease and diabetes. So another reason to try to bring these diseases down. And the way we do this is by um, limiting our intake of things like cigarettes, alcohol, unhealthy foods. Um, but I think, you know, in a funny way, there is hope. COVID brings some hope. And that is in the form of taxing these unhealthy food and drinks so that people are encouraged to make healthier choices and live healthier lives. And taxes can also be used. Taxes on unhealthy commodities can be used to fund COVID recovery and other needs that governments clearly have now. So this is a win-win because when it comes to NCDs, I just would, I wish governments would see that it makes complete sense to work on COVID recovery by using taxes on unhealthy um, commodities, because these are the very substances that are making us unhealthy, overweight, and more susceptible to COVID. So it's kind of a circle and it just, it it makes sense. And I I hope we'll move there. That's what we fight for quite often. 
Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, one of the key issues that are on the agenda that Tala identified is this this food system summit. Uh, you know, that could touch on some of what Kerry talked about, um, you know, the need to look more holistically, some of what you're talking about. It's, it certainly represents trying to look at the big picture, a systems level of view of addressing malnutrition and poor nutrition around the world. Um, do you think the Food Systems Summit is an opportunity for this kind of looking big at systems change? Um, how is that showing up on your radar, Rebecca? Well, I wish it would. Um, I think the food system summit is an imp- food systems in generally are an important part of climate change and the sustainability discussions. And really, we applaud that the that the summit seems to recognize this, at least in words. But but we want this done right. We want to strengthen those local food systems to help local producers and communities ensure access to nutritious foods. And what we don't want is for corporate in- interests and transnational food companies to take over. They've, they already control about 70% of the food sources, and much of the food they produce is unhealthy and unsustainable. And that's why um, I think advocates are in conflict about this and why many local and indigenous growers are, in fact, boycotting this summit, because they see it as being consumed by corporate interests. So I would love to see it do what it's saying, but I don't see that happening, quite frankly. This is what we're fighting, I think. Great. And and I have a follow-up question, but I also notice our colleagues from the Healthy Caribbean Coalition have asked to make a comment and come up to the stage. HCC, would you like to add something to our to our discussion? Well, just really enjoying the discussion is a lot of a lot of the work we are doing in the Caribbean is centered around, as you would know, in terms of policy engaging policymakers around these same, these said topics. And we are always willing to learn to, you know, what's happening around the globe. How best can we as well sway our policymakers in the direction of, you know, adopting some of these policies that we are seeing working across the globe? Thanks for contributing that. I agree. It's, you know, one of the things we want to come out of these type of discussions is for people to feel uh, motivated and empowered to impact the, the the policy environment that we're that we're in, um, Carrie. I want I want to come back to this issue of the food system summit. I know you had covered some of the prep meetings in the run up to the summit. Um, did you see or learn anything that might kind of give hint to some of the currents of you know? You know, as our colleague from Healthy Caribbean Coalition pointed out, like where is the political power? What are the issues that that are being points of tension within this discussion? Steve, I covered the pre-summit in Rome, and I really enjoyed it because it was mostly made up. Well, there was a there was a strong voices of of small scale farmers, indigenous people, which was incredible, and I just hope that the Formal summit on the 23rd of September doesn't lose that impetus because there was a lot of energy and there was extraordinary participation. And there have been many summits in countries all over the world. There have been thousands of, of, um, of, of, of events that have been convened in the run-up to, to the summit. So there's a lot of energy and a lot of interest. And I really do hope that 
Rebecca's warning about how the corporate interests have, have and from the Caribbean, how these corporate interests are, are hijacking um, our food systems. I hope that they're not given a space at, the, at a big space at the, at the summit because um, the, the pre-summit was really interesting. The, the um, Rwanda's president pre presented the consensus on the African nations about how the continent's food agenda, agenda needs to be um, reformed. And that was very much on nutrition-centered food policies, including making food feeding schemes um, uh, healthy, a big push on local markets and, and improving local food supply, um, money to, to farmers' cooperatives and ensuring that women um, farmers have, have access to, 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 to what they need. And then also finally expanding the social safety networks and investing in climate advance warning systems. So those are the priorities for, for, from Africa's point of view. And I also do hope that they also get um, discussed at, at the summit, that it's not overtaken by the junk food and sugary drinks um, interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as somebody, I'm not uh, an expert in, in healthy food policy and, and work um, only a bit in that area of vital strategies. But, you know, looking at Twitter and in discussions among advocates, it's been, I would say, heartening to see the, uh, the civil society coalesce around this idea of limiting corporate influence and power within these proceedings. And I also found it really heartening, um, as you were just saying, that Within this space, people are not talking about incremental reform. You know, the advocates are really talking about how do we rethink food systems in a way that prioritizes local production, prioritizes, you know, local farmers instead of giant agribusinesses. Um, but this health, you know, this kind of topical area of uh, corporate power, um, commercial interest has been a cross-cutting issue and cuts across, in fact, all the five things that, uh, you know, agenda items that Tala touched on today. And I know in our perspective as, a, as an organization that was pushing for the, you know, high level, the 2011 high level meeting on NCDs, um, we've only seen this topic become more and more important. Um, Tala, you've also been covering the UN um, for a long time. And I know we had you on a previous public health power hour and talked about the commercial determinants of health and the growing influence at the UN. What do you think we should know about this trend? Well, it's an elephant in the room, right? So it's a multinational takeover, essentially, of global governance. Now, rightly so, as Kerry said, it's not everything to have the African Union be on the G20. It won't necessarily solve the world's ills. What can be done is, I, I don't know how many listeners know, and we discussed this, Steve, but the World Economic Forum and the United Nations during the previous U.S. administration's you know, funding shortages of the U.N., commitment to nationalism, their rights, uh, removing themselves from a multilateralism type of approach, um, signed a, a memorandum of understanding. This is Antonio Gutierrez and the World Economic Forum in 2019, which created this partnership. And the partnership essentially allowed multinational corporations to sneak in through the doors of the UN and begin influencing the agenda. 
under the guise of we will provide sustainable development financing for the SDGs, we will support the climate agenda. But now that they're there, there's no intergovernmental um, alert system or system of checks and balances. It's just corporations working directly with the UN to bring their agenda in. And we see that with the food summit where you have small and medium enterprises um, coming to the pre-summit, being involved in the dialogue, pushing their agenda. And we know that small and medium enterprises, and I know Nandita's on this call, maybe can give us further insight, but they are pushing the ultra-processed food agenda because it's quick, it's easy. You can get food to people who need it, packaged, pre-packaged facts in reshifting, transforming the food system back to local farming, enabling local farmers to have alert systems and, and access to technology in regards to natural disasters and potential risks to agriculture. Why not just invest heavily in something that will create NCDs, um, cause stunting in children? I mean, there are a number of, of health concerns. So I think that's really where we need to to look because corporate capture essentially is taking over the UN and I know I don't know how many people on the phone are on this call are tired of hearing about accelerators we seem to be accelerating with accelerators to nowhere and that's my concern thanks uh I see I also see our colleague Nandito Morkudla in the audience if you want to add comment Nandito you can Request the mic, we'd be happy to bring you up to stage. Rebecca, this, I'm curious about, um, I mean, we work together in the tobacco control space, and I wonder if there might be some instructive lessons there. I mean, certainly in tobacco control, we have an industry on the other side, the tobacco industry that's been vilified for rightly for a long time um, because they're, you know, purveyors of the of cigarettes, which are the leading cause of death and disease in the world and will kill 1 billion people this century if nothing is done. And I know that, um, you know, we've participated in some work getting, um, although that the industry is trying to kind of get back in the good graces of global, you know, uh, of, of global actors, but we participated in some active campaigns to make sure that they're out um, of, you know, UN proceedings. What, do you think, I mean, are there lessons there? What should people learn about what it takes to, um, you know, to identify and counter corporate interests at, at this, at Hunga and elsewhere? Yeah, Steve, thanks for that. Um, absolutely. So we've done a pretty good job or advocates have done a pretty good job over the years um, keeping tobacco out of the UN. And the way they do that is there's actually a special clause in something called the FENSA, which is there, relates to how the WHO um, deals with um, non-state actors, which are non-government groups, that basically says that tobacco and arms just have absolutely no place at these proceedings, at the UN, at WHO. So they're, they really are kept out. They really are, for the most part, not around. As um, Tal was saying, it's a very different story when it comes to food and alcohol, especially food, because it's so complicated with food. Um, and I think that really what we need to do is push for them not being, for, for these ultra-processed foods, for these corporate foods that really are mostly unhealthy, 
not to be part of not to be allowed to be part of policy making, um, and the same with alcohol. Um, and we have an organization at Vital Strategies called Stop, which works specifically on keeping tobacco out um, and monitoring what they do. And whenever there's any bit of them coming in, we jump on it. So, for instance, there's something called um, the UN Global Council. And recently, there was a group allowed to be part of the UN Global Council that's actually a front group for the tobacco industry. And we have sent letters and been talking to um, the UN Global Council about this and trying to make sure that these kind of front groups don't, don't, don't kind of slip in back doors. And that's we're working the same thing with the ILO, which is also has some, even though they say they don't have tobacco within their organization at all, there's some front groups that have gotten in and we're working on making sure that doesn't happen. So the work continues, but this work hasn't even started really with food and alcohol. And I think we need to focus there on keeping them out because I don't think the products they are producing and providing are helping are helping us to address NCDs and, and, and those issues and SDGs really. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that the both of you point out is that, um, you know, the, the opportunity that gets made when the institutions are weakened or under-resourced, and that's when that creates an opportunity for a you know well-financed and ambitious uh, commercial interest to come in and try and you know under the name of common cause you know garner influence. Um, and I sort of in that area, you know, I know one of the cross-cutting topics is is strengthening the World Health Organization or the WHO. And I think that seems to be wide consensus among many people. We need go to go into the future with a stronger WHO, greater global coordination, a stronger health body, but not that much consensus about how that will come out. Um, do you, any of you have any predictions about what we'll see at UNGA related to strengthening WHO and its role in, in the, either COVID or the, uh, the other challenges here? Steve, I think the more interesting conversation is going to happen at the World Health Assembly in November when this idea of a pandemic treaty is going to be discussed. I think that that's where probably the the meatier part of strengthening the WHO and um, addressing future pandemics is going to really take shape. So I'm not sure about UNGA. Um, What the idea of a pandemic treaty is that they want to take the framework convention on tobacco as as a model and have a framework convention on on pandemics and then countries sign up and and agree to a whole lot of 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 issues and for me what i love about that idea is you remove the decision making power about where vaccines should go from individual politicians and um put it more in in into the hands of 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 a more independent or, or um body such as the who where vaccines can be seen as a global good that should go where they're needed, not to places where people with money can buy buy them up. Because I think it's a little naive for people to to even to say that, you know, vaccine nationalism is bad, rich countries shouldn't give boosters. When the power to decide that it lies in the hands of politicians who are elected by the people that they they're serving and who want boosters who want all sorts of things. 
So if they cannot decide because there'll be a more equitable division of um, of of vaccines at a at a higher or a different level, I think that would be the ideal. I mean, it's 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 pie in the sky in many ways, but that that for me would be the be the the the, the prize that 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 one should look at for 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 the future for the WHO and for pandemic preparedness in the future. Tala, I saw you come off mute. Would you like to add on to that? No, I think Carrie made a very good summation. Um, it's just that I just want to just reiterate the just very important role of WHO and how detrimental the previous U.S. administration was in terms of you know, causing that second guessing of the WHO. I mean, the international health regulations put WHO in a position to lead on the ground in terms of technical support and building sustainable national primary health care systems. And countries need that, first and foremost, before the next crisis. So there has to be a focus in terms of strengthening the role of WHO. And it's unfortunate that you're with vaccine hoarding and nationalism and kind of a move away from the multilateralist approach by countries like the United States, Brazil, Hungary, and others, there has been this hesitation in, and a lack of trust in WHO. And I think that needs to be rebuilt. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you're both touching on vaccine equity, and I'm sure Unga always represents a moment for people to take the podium and make a pledge um, and I think a lot of the pledges made earlier in the pandemic seem not to have come through pledges for, you know, for vaccines to sort of trickle out of high income countries. And I think it has caused sort of, as you were touching on, Carrie, the, a lot of, um, you know, anger at the kind of charity based model of distribution of, of public goods like vaccines um, versus something that's more um, based in science and methodical. And, and for those of us who recognize that the, the world is in this together, we need to vaccinate um, everybody or this pandemic will be never ending. I'm wondering um, if any of you have thoughts about how, how else vaccine equity will show up at UNGA besides, you know, declarations by countries for, you know, that they'll share by rich countries that they'll be funding more. Um, you know, more vaccines. Any other thoughts about how vaccine equity will be on the agenda in a few weeks? Well, Steve, I suspect that the countries, the poor countries in the world, the ones that are really having trouble with resources, the the African countries of the world, many of them, um, will be clamoring for, you know, not only vaccine, but but a way that they can make their own vaccines like the way India has so that they don't have to be reliant on, you know, the U.S.'s of the world. So it's about a lot of patent issues and things like that, I suspect, will come up so that um, there can be easier access um, to creating vaccines locally. And I think to add to that conversation, uh, it may not be a popular viewpoint, but, you know, what happened with Bill Gates and, you know, kind of vaccine production and distribution and enabling uh, developing countries to produce and manufacture their own vaccines. I mean, there is a kind of colonial umbrella behind this, and it's problematic. And again, I hate to keep pointing to the elephant in the room, but 
we have to try to shift mindsets in terms of who gets to decide which country gets to produce vaccines and distribute it to their own citizens. I mean, there has to be a shift in mindset in regards to that. Yeah, I want to remind our audience, if you want to contribute to this discussion, if you have a, a question for one of our speakers about UNGA or one of the topics they mentioned, please um, request the mic or sort of raise your hand. We'd be happy to have you up to the front. Um, you know, something that I feel like I've noticed, you know, within this discussion and more broadly within the pandemic is that, you know, many of our colleagues in different public health areas are sort of um, trying to look bigger, you know, recognizing that we don't organize our social priorities or global collaboration around the idea of global public goods like equitable vaccine distribution or cross-country industry regulation for cleaner environments, even though we recognize that that every country would benefit from it. And I, I feel like I'm hearing greater calls for those that care about health, to for people to look across topic and look at more fundamental drivers for substantial social reform and not just within their own issue areas. I feel like that's surrounding UNGA. I feel like it's a, a greater, tr a bigger trend within global public health. Um, do each of you think that's true? Does that, does that ring true for you? Well, yes, I, I think it does. I think I I, th I think that we need we need to take seriously that we're in the we're in a new we're in kind of a new situation which is these global problems are upon us in a way that we really have to we really have to come up with global solutions and we haven't we haven't really done that it's there's too much infighting you know I read an article in the New York Times recently and it was about you know, it was about sort of testing us, like imagining that this is that COVID, for instance, is the alien and come to get us. And can we as a world fight against it together? And I haven't haven't. There's a lot of fighting. Maybe there's some good stuff, too. Maybe we're moving forward in certain ways, but we need much more. We really need to work much more together. And that's why, as Tala said, this work of the UNGA is important because this global governance is just critical. It's not in great shape right now, but it really is so important. Steve, if you don't mind, I'd love to come in. Yesterday I was on a press conference addressed by the WHO Director General, Dr. Tedros, and he said that less than 10% of the vaccine doses promised by the G7 countries to low- and middle-income countries had actually been shipped to these countries. Um, so I still think that there's a lot of lip service. Um, and as you say, UNGA will no doubt be full of platitudes, but we want to see delivery. We're just really, really tired of promises. We want to see vaccines delivered to our countries, injected into people so that our people can be protected. So that would be number one. And um, this, the second thing that, that um, one of the speakers mentioned is about producing our own vaccines in Africa. The WHO has actually set up a vaccine, um, an mRNA hub with a South African company. They have the capacity, they're ready, but the Modernas and the Pfizer's refuse to share their 
recipe basically for to, how to make the um, the vaccine with with the, with this company and with this hub, um, and and that is what is 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 preventing us. So there's all the intellectual property um, rights that, that 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 are standing in the way of again equitable access to to vaccines, and this is um, being negotiated. It's been negotiated for more than a year. Um, at the World Trade Organization, with absolutely no um, no sign of, of of any resolution, and yet the pandemic soldiers on. So um, it would be great to see this quick commitment to ending inequity in action. Great. We we had a colleague who requested the floor, Zubair Faisal Abbasi. Have I said that correct? Would you like to make a comment or ask a question? Uh, thank you very much uh, for taking my question. Uh, this is a question, actually. Uh, my question is that I read somewhere in, in The Economist or somewhere that uh, this people's vaccine sounds like a very good idea, and uh, you definitely have to relax IPRs and stuff like that. But they argued that there is an involvement of technology transfer, that you have to really uh, increase capacity of uh, maybe less developed countries to house such engineering, bioengineering bio, bio facilities. So in the short term, this is not possible. And perhaps they have some other concerns that Bill Gates and others have said. Uh, what UN system, how UN system looks at it and how they want to respond to this, the, the question of technology transfer to the less developed countries for vaccine production. Thank you very much. Thanks. Excellent question. Um, I'm, I, I'm not sure if any of our panelists feel confident to speak to that, um, but I'd be happy to... I can address uh, that if you'd sure. you like to speak. Mm -hmm. It's a very good question, and I think that it's, it's, it has to happen before the patent discussion. Um, we have to be able to, and this discussion, to answer your question, yes, it has been brought up. I've heard it in WHO meetings. I've heard it at the food summit, pre-summit. Technology transfer is a main concern. So we have to equip uh, countries with the technology know-how in order to be able to set up to manufacture and produce before you get the recipe. But that involves resources. And you have the G20 committing money. You have governments that have committed money, but every single outcome is a shortfall in terms of a pledge and then the money actually coming in. There has to be a restructuring in terms of development banks so that the IMF doesn't charge an interest rate for developing countries to borrow where developed countries don't have those same fees. So it's, there has to, again, we go back to what Rebecca said, there has to be a radical shift in, way, in the way that some of these developing financing banks um, help to really provide the innovation in country, and it's there, to give the resources so that the technology can be um, produced and sustained in order to be able to set up that uh, manufacturing sector. That's powerful. Thank you. I, I, I think, you know, another sort of overarching theme for me is as you've been helping each of you sort of translate and untangle the United Nations General Assembly um, is, you know, it seems clear to me that transparency and engagement with the system is really important to understand. I think too few of us are actually paying attention to what's going on at, at uh, meetings like UNGA and how the decisions and declarations are coming about. 
you know, who the system empowers or disempowers. And is there an approachable way for our audience members or listeners to start to learn more? How should we better monitor and advocate for improvements within this kind of global system? Rebecca, maybe you could start because I know that you, as you've mentioned earlier, have done some work on some projects that are that are monitoring, for instance, commercial interests. But any thoughts on, yeah. on how people can get involved? I think it's a really good question. You know, I've worked at the UN on and off for a long time before COVID. And like people coming to the UN is like an amazing thing. And people really do get sort of starry eyed being in that being in that building in New York, for instance, um, being able to watch the proceedings and which, you know, people can do. And, 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 and then unfortunately I think people get quickly, quickly jaded because as we've all been talking about, there's so much work to do and so much infighting. And um, so it's, it, the, the UN to me is, um, it's fascinating and boring and important and useless all at the same time. And I think that's really hard because that makes it really hard for people to get involved specifically. But I guess, you know, I guess um, advocates certainly have, you know, helped to bring this issue and NCD advocates in particular to bring these issues of the problem with the control by um, corporations um, to the fore. We've made a lot of progress in this area. So first in tobacco many years ago and more recently um, with food and alcohol and arms and even, you know, fossil fuel producers, that there's a there's some some consensus, I think, and some by advocates, and then um, some consensus even within the UN that they're beginning to to have um, the set the, the organization set up so that, for instance, WHO has some of this, so that there really there are departments that are now thinking about the co- commercial determinants of health, and trying to keep such you know organizations at bay to some degree. Um, so there there's been a lot of progress here, and I mean I guess the advocates have to kind of keep up the good work and keep pointing out, um, you know, who is the UN for and who owns it. Um, the UN Foundation, for instance, has been a place that advocates have pushed back um, because like organizations like Nestle, which produces a lot of unhealthy foods, has been part of the UN Foundation, which, which funds the UN essentially. And there's pushback now about groups like that being part of the UN Foundation. So I see that as a good sign. Mm-hmm. Great. And I tell, I know you've been an advocate for communities engaging directly within the UN system and giving you know, disenfranchised, disempowered communities of voice. Um, what's your perspective on transparency, accountability, connection with, you know, people's lived, real lived experiences? How can that come through? It's a very good question. And um, I, I mean, for me, the UN is so relevant because of the multilateral approach. And I don't know if we have an alternative that works because we see that nationalism doesn't from history. And so I would want to see more, and we have seen it at the local level and grassroots movements around the sustainable development goals in countries. As Carrie mentioned for this food summit, there was something like a thousand local dialogues organized 
community-based organizations, local farmers coming together to try to address this food issue. Unfortunately, they don't have the power, and I would like to see some of the power dynamics shift, but that requires political will, um, the removal of multinational corporations from the center of the UN agenda, and an intergovernmental process, not only with the vaccines, which we'll see with the WHA in November, but an intergovernmental process that has a checks and balance system that really can function in the way that it needs to. And right now, that's not really happening. Thanks, Carrie. I'll give you the final word on this. In addition to following you um, and final strategies and our speakers on stage, um, I mean, you've spent your, your your career is building accountability and transparency and, and untangling and translating the system. But do you have other thoughts uh, besides reading your excellent journalism, ways that people can um, keep an eye on these important trends and um, you know, and the drivers of our of our global health um, agenda. I think a very powerful thing people can do is to join the local, almost consumer rights lobbying groups and and other interest groups to try and ensure that the voices of ordinary people are heard on from access to medicines, organisations to to cleaner energy to better food. That would be, I think. The best way forward to counterbalance the the strength of of the multilaterals and to put politicians under pressure to listen to ordinary people. Thank you, um, and I want to thank each of you for joining today's Public Health Power Hour. And um, I certainly found it illuminating and interesting. I hope our listeners did too. If you're um, listening and you want to. Um, stay engaged in conversations about public health. Um, follow Vital Strategies on Twitter. Follow each of our speakers. We'll be having another Public Health Power Hour here on Twitter next week on air pollution, pneumonia, and children's health, including some fantastic guests from UNICEF, um, a youth advocate um, speaking to this issue. Um, and following this, um, we'll be scheduling it on Twitter and you could send a reminder right on your phone to follow next week. Um, thanks everybody again for being part of the Public Health Power Hour and I hope the rest of your day is a healthy one. Be well. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.